Welcome to Brazos Matters. I'm Jay Sokol, and my guest today is Dr. Mark Benden, head of the Department of Environmental and Occupational Health and director of the Texas A&M Ergonomic Center at the university's School of Public Health. Mark, thanks for being here. Glad to be here. My did pleasure. I get the titles right? You did. Very well done. Okay. So if you will indulge me for just a moment, I want to go over some of your bona fides so uh, people understand a little more of who you are. Okay. So I've read that your research interests are worker obesity, classroom ergonomics, and childhood obesity, medical device development, sedentary behavior intervention, and remote work. And at least one online reference to you states that you have 24 U.S. patents with maybe others pending. Is that a correct count? That's correct. Okay. And the expected lifetime economic impact of your designs exceeds $2 billion. Yes. It seems like you could be doing more. <laughs> yeah, I, I got to figure out what to do with all my spare time, right? It's crazy. Uh, it's amazing reason, uh, reading about some of the things that you have done and, and that you've continue to do. So I want to start with this. If you went into a, a typical office environment or maybe even a, a school classroom, what do we see and use that has your fingerprints on it? Well, there are a couple of ways that our research would have uh, impacted either the classroom or the office. The first is clearly product design. So you would find products that we have designed and developed here at Texas A&M or even in prior companies I've worked with. Um, you might sit in those, you might stand at those, you might work with those. Those might support your mouse, your keyboard, um, your monitor. So there's lots of different things that would, that would be impacted. Another big way that the research is impacting that stuff is that we've created, <coughs> sorry, um, we've created some impacts on the entire industry by helping develop standards. Hmm. And so uh, you do the research with the real humans, uh, you, you find interesting information about uh, usage, uh, the way people use things, uh, how much, how often, and then you create industry standards so that the companies that build these products build to those standards. And that's really been impactful because then it's not just the one that you designed, it's everyone designing all of theirs to a similar standard that you've helped create. So also another way to kind of impact those industries. So do these standards also apply in other countries, or is this uh, generally in the United States? Yes. So most of these standards are international, and if they don't have their own legs, what happens is most of the other countries, for instance, in the European Union, they would refer to our standards. So we would be referenced a lot of times. We model after theirs, or they model after ours as kind of a starting point for standards. Um, there's another way, too, in the sense of uh, destructive testing. So there's kind of how tall or how wide or how it should be adjustable. Uh, think of that as sort of usage. And then there's also, hey, this thing shouldn't break or fail or you know yield if it's given certain circumstances. And so we, we help design those specifications. So companies can test products destructively uh, to their limits and make sure that they comply. Because obviously, you know, we're sitting right now, neither one of us wants to fall out of this chair to the floor right. uh, violently. That would be bad. So um, yeah, there's a lot that goes into that type of thing, a lot of work behind on the details. So. So did you come in here and immediately start judging our furniture? I did. I am, yes, sitting literally sitting in judgment of these chairs and their lack of lockout on the backrest. So it'll be a good ab work for me, workout for me, though. So that's Your anxiety has spiked in yes, here. Yes, yes, definitely. Oh, that's hilarious. Well, so with a career that's been, I think, heavily devoted to making workplaces and places of learning healthier and more comfortable, what happens when those physical spaces are 
augmented by or even replaced by artificial intelligence. Yeah, we're seeing a really huge uptick in not only interest, but finally, uh, actually, utilization. So some of the IP that we have pending out of the Ergonomics Center is tied to artificial intelligence, um, trying to help understand how people work, um, what kind of makes them tick, uh, how do we keep them healthy. One of the real advantages that the AI has for workers is that not only can it assist in the tasks that you do, obviously can replace some of those tasks. Um, Some of those things already we're finding it can do better, uh, faster, more efficiently. But on the human health side, we're really excited because you know the the ability that we have to kind of self-monitor as we get into our work, it kind of gets diminished, right? We get focused on the task. And it's very hard for most of us, particularly me, especially if you ask my wife, um, to multitask. Mm. We're not great at that. And very few of us, many of us think we are, very few of us actually are. Um, so when we're trying to do a complex task, it's nice if the AI in the room can assist with monitoring other things like perhaps our health. So if we're getting a little bit off track, if we're starting to have some uh, musculoskeletal issues, if we're having some uh, stress, AI can pick up on that, it can detect that, and it can recommend, hopefully in a positive and timely manner, some sort of an intervention or a break uh, for whatever the, the stressor is that's going on with us at the time. So there's lots of positive pieces. I know people are concerned about AI and what it might bring and uh, what it might do. Um, That's really normal for any technology, new technology adoption. Mm -hmm. Uh, I recently read something from uh, the Wright brothers, and it was fascinating because at the time that they were trying to develop, you know, human controlled flight, right? So, you know, put someone on, have them control. There was gliders obviously out there. There were, there were balloons. Um, But, you know, having someone actually take off on a flat surface control the plane, land safely, not die. Uh, They were the first, and they were really working hard on this. And it was funny because they ran a bicycle shop, and bicycles in the late 1890s, everyone bemoaned them as the world's terrible, worst thing. Your your children will be able to get two miles away from home in 10 minutes. It's the devil, right? It was terrible. (laughs) And people were so concerned about these hideous uh, bicycles. And of course, now they're the you know, widely used mode of transportation, great for physical health, all that kind of stuff. So I, I think we'll see the same thing with AI. It'll take take a little while to get the edge off and find proper places for it to be used to help us. Um, hopefully all of that without some Terminator scenario. Right. But uh, yeah, I do see a lot of positives coming from it for the workers. So in terms of researching that, because, because we tend to read or hear the the extreme examples of what could happen. You know, things could go wildly wrong in this direction, or it could be okay if all these these things fall into place and, and we end up over here, which is viewed as unlikely. But there's a lot of middle ground. So where do you yeah. specifically spend your time? Where are you spending your time doing research? So right now we're looking at a number of different places where there are tasks that we would consider kind of dull and monotonous. Okay. Uh, uh, good news, your job seems to be very safe for a while. So you seem to be in great, Thanks, seems Lee. to be a sweet spot right now. So, right. Uh, But we, we look forward to um, taking some of these rather dull and monotonous jobs and having AI either assist or replace. Um, the good news for that is that most people don't really enjoy those jobs anyway. They're usually low paying. They're not very exciting. Um, when you see these technologies coming in to replace literally sometimes a person doing a job, you have to keep in mind that there's probably three or four new jobs that were created around the ability to get that technology into that place to do that work. Mm. So from a 
net gain for the economy, it's actually a plus. It's actually a positive. Uh, there will be more jobs created, in other words, than taken away. Uh, but there will be some that will be changed or altered um, greatly, probably in the next three to five years. But you're saying I'm safe. I think you're safe. I think this is one of those jobs that uh, AI is not coming for just yet. So do you watch um, some with interest some of the more publicized uh, anxieties like um, the strikes from the Writers Guild of America and the SAG after Actors Union and even some potential alliances between Microsoft and the AFL-CIO, right. all, all with you know some interest in yes. finding this common ground. Yeah, it's going to be con continued uh, ongoing struggles. I think you'll see a lot of back and forth. There are some really basic economics at play here. And, you know, we see this type of disruptive technology throughout history. It's It's been consistently something that we've experienced. This one probably will take it to a new level. But if you look back at, you know, the creation of the internet or the smartphone, I mean, those were very disruptive technologies. I mean, who would have imagined when you and I were here in college in the late 80s, early 90s, that we would have the type of technology in our hip pocket that we have now. And so powerful, you know, it does so many things for us. This is going to be the same way, but I do believe it's going to be to an even greater extent. I think it will really change and transform. So how does union uh, labor, you know, how does it work with different technologies that have the chance to possibly eliminate people, uh, particularly like you mentioned Hollywood, people with star power? Right. Um, yeah, I think there's going to be some, some big disruptions. I think right now they've probably been kind um, in the negotiations and trying to get everybody back on track. Nobody wants to see all of our movies shut down, but there's there has to be some change, right? Mm -hmm. uh, when you can when you can do um, what a six-figure person can do for, you know, $1,000. Right. Uh, you have to start rethinking that six-figure salary for that person. Um, so that's the kind of stuff that we're seeing is it's not a a 50% or a 20%, you know, it's a hundred to one type of change hmm. in what you can do. So that'll, that'll continue to be disruptive. I, I wouldn't uh, expect that to slow down. And I don't think any of us has a great playbook for it. I think we're finding our way through it. Yeah. But you have spent at least uh, a good amount of your career kind of in the workshop, yes. like, like with your hands, yes. creating things like yes. items that, that we can use to uh, be more comfortable and, and, and so forth, but this feels like you have veered into a very different area. Absolutely, yeah, and it's been it's been uh, a slow process. You know, uh, when I started my career, if I wanted to make a prototype of course, I went to the shop and I did what would be considered subtractive manufacturing. I, I took a block of something oh. and I whittled away on it and it took material away. Uh, today, I would maybe still go to the shop, but I would be carrying in a very lightweight plastic 3D print uh, with additive manufacturing. So taking nothing and creating exactly the part to the exact tolerances that I need, nothing, nothing less, nothing more. Mm. Um, that is even changing with AI because, you know, for the last 20 years, for me to make those 3D prints, I've had to sit down and work on a 3D drawing. And if you work with it every day, that's great. You get pretty good at it. If you don't work with it every day, it, it's still cumbersome. Not as difficult as pen and paper and ruler, but still difficult. Um, today with AI, we have the ability to speak just in plain language, just like you and I are right now, uh, to create items in the computer in a 3D view. In other words, make a print of a piece or a part that I need for you know some type of prototype, and then 
uh, hit print mm. and that part is made. So those are, those are the types of disruptive changes that we're seeing right now. I think that for me, um, switching and pivoting and kind of embracing what's happening with, first of all, digital humans, which is a big area we've gotten into recently, um, and then also AI in general to monitor health and help people get feedback on their health in real time. Um, that's a game changer. You, know, you think about going to the doctor once a year. Mm-hmm. You show up at the doctor, first thing they do when you walk in, they take your height and your weight, and they take your blood pressure typically, right? So you know, you've gone all year. You've had ups and downs with your health. You've had moments where all of those things were different. Um, but at that moment, you're getting a snapshot to your physician. You're going to have a conversation about your health, you know, see how you're doing, make some decisions about your health. Yeah. Uh, the power of monitoring those types of things year round and understanding the ebbs and flows and the ins and outs of what's going on with you and really tracking and trending, looking at all of your health metrics and then having the ability, cause it's very hard for all of us. If I gave you a hundred health metrics about a patient, including their DNA history, genetic mm-hmm. history, it would be very difficult for you to kind of process all of that as sort of like a risk assessment of, hey, this is something this person, this exact person in this exact moment in time should be concerned about. Um, AI can do that in an instant. And so uh, even for actual clinical care, for medical care, right, for treating things that are already wrong with you, AI has some real big advantages today. Looking ahead and trying to be in the preventive mode, which is really where we all want to be, right? Nobody wants to have to be treated and diagnosed and you know try to get well. They everyone else would prefer to not get sick in the first place, right? That's the right. better choice. And so I think AI has the potential to move us as a country away from such a reactive healthcare stance. We are very when we talk about healthcare, we're really talking about sick care. We're talking about people who are sick hmm. and trying to help them get it figured out and get better. Um, it's way cheaper and way better for all of us if we don't have to get sick in the first place, right? If we can avoid that heart attack, that's much better than figuring it out, you know, getting a stent, getting treatment, getting on some drugs. Um, we would rather avoid it, you know, completely. And I think AI can help us do that better than we are all able to right now. So you use the term digital human. Yes. What does digital human mean to you right now? And what's it going to mean to me in the future? Yeah. So we've talked a lot. It's interesting. We've talked a lot about robots, right? Everybody has kind of a thing with robots and I I do love robots. I think they're awesome. And I think you'll see more and more of them as time goes by, particularly in service jobs. So I think you'll see, uh, you know, wait staff in restaurants uh, that are robotic. You're going to see a lot of things that you're used to seeing a human, all of a sudden there's going to be a robot there. But when it comes to digital humans, that's more of an interface on a screen. So you have a uh, representation of a person. It it looks like a person. Um, We can design those people to look like any kind of human you want them to look like, including even a real person. You can model them after a real person. But the beautiful thing about that is that we can have that interface be something that you're comfortable with, you're used to. So imagine uh, you're in a situation where you're in a medical clinic and you're getting uh, grilled by your uh, clinical staff about some of your health issues. It's really hard for most of us to to answer the questions correctly, right? So uh, Jay, how many drinks did you have this morning? Mm. Um, it's 
you know, your mind doesn't go to how many drinks you had this morning. Your mind goes to what is the answer that I'm supposed to give that sounds right? right. What's the correct answer, right? Or the, the answer that doesn't make me look like I've had three drinks this morning. You don't want to say that. You want to give the other answer. We think digital humans may be able to parse out some of those sensitive questions, those topics. They may be a little bit better at kind of putting people at ease and allowing them to communicate. We're seeing this particularly in the younger generation. They are very comfortable. You know, They were very early adopters, mm-hmm. uh, especially young children today. They know nothing else other than the digital world. Um, so they're very comfortable interacting with technology. And we think this may actually be a game changer for collecting health data and information for people. So. Mm. If you just tuned in, I'm Jay Sokol. You're listening to Brazos Matters. My guest is Dr. Mark Benden, head of the Department of Environmental and Occupational Health and director of the Texas A&M Economics Center at the University School of Public Health. So I'd like to shift to a different area of research for you. Um, Remote and hybrid work becoming the new norm. So what parts of that actually pique your interest and can be seen in your research? Yeah, we started doing this about three years before COVID hit, and it was a one of those sort of ancillary sideline uh, hobby type research topics. And we had a few of our doctoral students who were very interested in it. And so they pursued some research on it. We found some fascinating things about the home versus kind of the corporate environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the real shockers was the indoor air quality. And of course, again, this was before COVID where it actually became very important uh, what type of air quality you had wherever you were working. But we found that the homes were not as good as the corporate settings. One of the big reasons was that, you know, in your home to save money, you button your home up, right? You insulate it, you seal all the doors, you seal all the, you know, areas around the windows. Um, You don't want to let any of that hot Texas summer in because you have to pay to cool it down. Yeah. Well, that sounds great for your utility bill, um, but it's not so great for your health because what happens is the air is stale. It becomes stagnant. It's not refreshed. And in larger buildings, uh, the refresh rate of bringing in fresh air makeup is controlled, and you can set it and adjust it. And of course, during COVID, we really cranked it up and brought in a lot more fresh air to all the buildings, especially here on campus. Um, But we found that the air quality was very different. We found there were a lot more things in the homes that were not uh, good for us. And so a good example would be these furnishings in this office. These have all come through very large, reputable companies who sell into commercial spaces. Because of that, there are standards around the volatile organic compounds, the VOCs that can come off of this furniture. Uh, You might think of it as the new car smell or the new carpet smell. Turns out that smell is actually not good for us to breathe. I have read that. Yes, it's that's not, a real not a good thing. thing. It's a real thing. It's not good for us. And so uh, companies, again, like the, the ones that made these products you're sitting in right now, they have to go through a, a standard, a rigorous standard, and they get certified that they're not off-gassing a lot of these bad chemicals, right? Well, in your home, if you run down to the local big box real t- retailer and pick up you know, some of the products there and bring them home, you're not necessarily getting that same guarantee, that same certification. So you have indoor air quality that's not getting exchanged as often. You have that lack of fresh air makeup. You have typically less quality uh, filtration in the home mm-hmm. compared to a lot of the bigger you know, corporate offices and stuff. And then the things you bring in to your home are different. Of course, you're also probably running a candle or uh, cooking and you know you have pets and all kinds of stuff in your home that you don't have in the corporate setting. So we found that the work environment uh, for the you know the corporate worker 
from an indoor air quality was actually better. Uh, we were we were really surprised to find because we thought physical activity for the person who was uh, stuck in the cubicle that was mm-hmm. our mindset versus the person who was at home who'd be on their treadmill and out walking the dog and you know we just thought okay they're going to be tremendously advantaged uh, to work from home that turned out not to be the case they were just almost dead equal and we even checked the same people so in other words I would check Jay in the office and I would check Jay working from home same. No change in physical activity. We did not detect a difference. Interesting. So we were really disappointed in that because we thought, okay, this is going to be the most awesome selling point uh, for all of us to be able to work from home forever. Uh, just It just didn't work out that way. We really started getting down to if remote work is good, it's probably good in doses. Um, so we see the hybrid model seeming like it's coming out of the pandemic as more of the standard. Uh, even companies who initially shifted to 100% remote are starting to pivot to a hybrid. You know, one or two days a week, either in the office or you know at home, uh, depending on your corporate culture. But we're seeing that as more of a standard, and I think that's a, just enough to help people get extra things done during the week and run errands and so forth. Uh, The hour change for remote workers was another big difference. Hmm. We monitored uh, computer use. So when you log on and you do your your work for your company, we monitored that for years for people who were both remote and uh, working in the corporate setting. And we really expected um, not much difference because they all are supposed to work eight to five. But what we saw was that the people who work from home, their day extended greatly. So suddenly they were logging on at 7 a.m. They were logging off at midnight. Uh, they were not necessarily cranking out any more productivity. In fact, we found that to be very similar. The productivity was very um, uh, essentially equal, no statistical difference between the remote and the hybrid, even for, again, the same person. So that was, again, another change. But we often wonder, what does that mean for kind of the quality of life, right? If you're working from 7 a.m. to midnight on and off doing things, are you happier because you have the flexibility to stop for a minute or, or go pick up the kids at 2, mm-hmm. uh, come back and then get back on the computer? Is that better? Is that you know better for your quality of life, your work life? We, we're still not sure on that one. I think there's a lot more research that needs to be done there. And this question, even though we answered, yes, we can do some work from home, I don't know that we've necessarily 100% concluded we should or that it's the best. Has the university actually approached you to say, Mark, we'd really like you to look at this circumstance, this circumstance, because we feel like we may be able to pivot in some direction based on your research findings? Yes, we were um, very uh, involved in trying to help inform the university around policies that were written for university employees, particularly after COVID, when they started settling down, it was like, okay, we're we're not at home anymore because of COVID. So are we going to, you know, continue to work from home? Is that going to be a thing? And so, uh, yeah, our students got involved. They conducted large surveys of faculty and staff, and uh, we were able to provide data from corporate settings that we had researched for years. So absolutely. Hmm. Is there any shared liability or responsibility if you have uh, a worker who is working remotely or even in a hybrid setting? And there are indoor air quality issues, or yes. there, there are um, substandard ergonomics uh, at work, uh, at the workstation. Uh, is there any kind of shared responsibility for that, or does that fall completely on the worker? This has been an interesting one, and uh, corporations around the world are addressing this differently. So for instance, up in Dallas, we did a 
program with Nokia where we did uh, training of their remote workers. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they're not you know in an office setting, and we did use those digital humans to do that training. One of the reasons that that's so important is that even though you have your worker at home, you're really not able to sort of say, well, we don't have to worry about them anymore, right? Um, you're, you're, you still need to look out for their safety and their health and their wel- their welfare. Now that gets tricky. Uh, when people have uh, poor quality settings in the home. So one of the things companies have started doing is they're pivoting to allow uh, purchases for the home of proper ergonomic equipment. That way you can get set up and dialed into, you know, your particular uh, body shape and work style, uh, even though you're working from home. And so that makes a big difference for people already. We're seeing that as a, as a real positive trend. But if you ask the general kind of federal liability question from OSHA, OSHA right now is saying, uh, we don't want to deal with the homes. Mm. We don't want to, you know, that's not our, we're the workplace. And of course the companies would say, well, their workplace is their home. Right. So it's, it's an ongoing debate. I think you'll see that will become a litigation issue. It'll be settled in the courts over the next few years, but uh, that's certainly something that's still kind of wide open right now. Okay. So as we wind down our time here, are you okay with a Mark Benden ergonomics lightning round? Sure. Okay. okay. All right, here we go. Coolest name for one of your inventions, even if that name didn't get accepted. Ooh, coolest name. Yeah. Well, hmm. There was a uh, product that was accepted probably 15 years ago that was created for people to get on and off of stools uh, safely. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine a, a tall stool like at a lab bench or something. And uh, it was called the Next Step. And so, yeah, I think that was one of the, the catchier names. Okay, very nice. Coolest invention that never made it to market? Oh, wow. Probably the Ambicycle. Uh, that one was really awesome to evacuate patients. Um, the patient was kind of down on the bottom of the motorcycle and the rider was up above the paramedic. They could kind of see each other eye to eye and they could get them through traffic and, you know, rush hour and all that kind of stuff. And it just, yeah, never, never made too many lawyers. The Ambicycle. The Ambicycle. Another another good name, right? Okay. Uh, when is the last time you replaced your own chair? Oh my goodness. Good question. Probably six or seven years ago. And of course I bought one with a lifetime guarantee. Of course you did. (laughs) Um, which should we be choosing in restaurants, a booth or a table? Uh, great. Yeah. I think that it really depends a lot on the people that are there. Mm -hmm. So if I have to sit across from my six foot seven son, I do not want a booth Mm -hmm. because we're locked in. Right. I think both of us would rather have a chair. We can pivot, but, uh, booths seem to be also very comfortable once you get in them. Okay. So, uh, yeah, good question. Okay. You just picked up your rental car. What is the most important driver's seat adjustment you make? Uh, wow, I have to really be careful about that when I get in, so I don't bash my head trying to get in or my knees. So Not a problem for me. Always have to, <laughs> always have to make sure I slide that back first, uh, just to even get in. But then I think probably, uh, probably mirrors are the the next thing I go to to try to get adjusted once I get my seat set up. Okay, if we did an ergonomics audit of your personal workstation, what aspects would fail? Ooh, would fail. Um, clutter, probably. It's a, there's a lot of paperwork, so I have a whole desk just for the paperwork that I'm not putting away properly. So okay, okay. And finally, uh, the quickest tip uh, that might be useful to somebody uh, at their office setting or in their uh, work office, uh, uh, home office. Yes, yeah. your best ergonomic position yeah. is your next one. Okay, move. 
change. Move around. Move around. Don't don't sit still for very long. Don't stand for too long. Don't do anything for too long. Move, change. Okay. I think that's good advice. Dr. Mark Benden, thanks so much for being here and for the talk. My pleasure, Jay. Brazos Matters is a production of Aggieland's Public Radio, 90.9 KAMU-FM, a member of Texas A&M University's Division of Marketing and Communications. Our show is engineered and edited today by Program Director Matt Dittman. You can learn more about us at kamu.tamu.edu slash radio. Again, that's kamu.tamu.edu slash radio. I'm Jay Sokol. Thanks so much for joining us and listening. Have a great day.